The following is a truncated version of This Week in Amateur Radio. Please visit TWIAR.net for the full version. Welcome. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we go to air with edition number 1073 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The ARRL renews its request with the FCC to replace symbol rate bandwidth limits. We will have team coverage. North Korea is testing digital shortwave broadcasting on the amateur 80-meter band. The ARRL forms an ad hoc legislative advocacy committee to meet with lawmakers in Washington. The Mount Diablo Amateur Radio Club is assisting in restoring fire-damaged repeaters in California. Aries and Racy's teams are on site for the Storm Area 51 event in the high deserts of Nevada. Well-known Yukon amateur Jay Allen, VY1JA, is stepping away from amateur radio. And it's the 1930s, and here is a project for you. A portable receiver on your belt with the antenna in your hat. We will tell you all about it in this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will tell us the benefits we may see in the future from all of the currently dark fiber that's out there. Australia's own Anno Ben Shop, VK6FLAB, will enlighten us on what you should plan for your next outing. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, joins us with another edition of his series entitled Amateur Radio History Headlines. And our tower climbing and antenna expert, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, explains some tower vocabulary. That's all straight ahead as edition number 1073 of North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio facility here in Albany, New York, overlooking the beautiful Hudson River, where it is sunny and in the 80s, I think this is summer's last hurrah, and sitting in for Don Hewlett, K2ATJ, who is on assignment, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from our news bureau in Syracuse, New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. From our news bureau just outside Albany, New York, in the Geek Cave studios, I'm Rich Lawrence, KB2MOB. Reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where fall has finally stuck its nose into the weather tent, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR. 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Our lead story this week, in ex parte comments filed on September 17th in WT Docket 16-239, AWRL renewed its request that the FCC delete symbol rate limits for data transmissions in the amateur service rules. As it did in its initial filing, the ARRL asked the FCC to couple the removal of the symbol rate limits with the adoption of a 2.8 kHz bandwidth limit. In response to a 2013 ARRL petition for rulemaking in RM Docket 11708, the FCC proposed deleting the symbol rate limits but declined to replace them with the 2.8 kHz bandwidth that the ARRL wanted. 
This proceeding addresses an update to the commission's rules that is needed because a limitation in the rules unintentionally is inhibiting U.S. amateurs from employing the latest improvements to some of the digital modes, the ARRL said in its remarks. Data signals commonly used for daily communications as well as in disaster situations have bandwidths in the range of 2.5 kilohertz and must coexist with other modes that use bandwidths as narrow as 50 hertz. The league said the 1980s era symbol rate limits now inhibit the use of some efficient data modes. The symbol rate limit uniquely prevents radio amateurs in the United States from experimenting and innovating with a class of modern digital communication techniques that already are widely used in other countries, the ARRL told the FCC. The limit also impairs the ability of amateurs to improve support that they offer in times of a disaster. Repealing the symbol rate limit would allow shortened transmission time for the same amount of data without increasing the bandwidth occupied by the signal, ARRL contended. Other amateurs would benefit by the resulting reduction in potential interference. ARRL's remarks also addressed issues raised by other parties. Discussion by commenters in this proceeding delve into subjects well beyond its scope, ARRL said, noting that it had attempted to broker consensus among some of the most active commenters, with an eye toward exploring possible areas of agreement for the FCC's consideration. The ARRL noted that the parties to the ARRL arranged talks declined to forward to the FCC joint recommendations on which conditional agreement had been reached. The issues discussed with the parties are outside the scope of this docket and would require a further notice of proposed rulemaking before final consideration, the ARRL observed. Some of the same issues also are raised in petitions for rulemaking on which the Commission has sought comment. Given the policy as well as factual disagreements evidenced in the record, we understand that the Commission may decide to consider some of these issues. With more on this story, we go to This Week in Amateur Radio's own Will Rogers, K5WLR. One of those issues involves automatically controlled digital stations, or ACDS. Commenters' concerns focused on interference that could occur with a move away from symbol rate criteria. Automatically controlled digital stations with signals wider than 500 Hz and below 29.7 MHz are confined to specific subbands. ARRL recommended that the FCC consider rule changes that would have all ACDS stations and digital stations with bandwidths greater than 500 Hz share identified subbands. ARRL said if additional signals are added to the ACDS subbands as recommended, that it would strongly support expanding the HF ACDS subbands. But, ARRL added, changing the subband boundaries requires study and careful consideration of trade-offs because any changes will affect multiple user interests. ARRL referred subband reformulation issues to its HF Band Planning Committee for study and recommendations. Some commenters also raised the issue of obscure and encrypted messages. ARRL pointed out in its ex parte remarks that it remains opposed to encryption in the amateur bands, but disagreed with commenters who argue that the digital modes being used by radio amateurs around the world are per se obscured or encrypted. ARRL noted that FCC rules permit the use of new and innovative digital modes without prior approval, if specified conditions are met. 
Digital techniques must use approved codes with publicly documented technical characteristics, and their purpose must be to facilitate communication and not to obscure content. Some commenters allege that specific messages violate the Commission's rules governing encryption, third-party messages, pecuniary interests, objectionable language, or commercial carriage, the ARL noted, and they have called for open-source decoding software to aid in enforcing the applicable rules. We observe that recently there have been audible efforts at self-policing, the ARRL said. Unresolved complaints are appropriately handled as enforcement matters rather than rulemaking matters. ARRL concluded, It is vital that the rules governing the amateur radio service facilitate continuation of its experimental traditions and purposes. Using the amateur spectrum sandbox for innovation and development of new ideas and technologies is of significant public benefit. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Radio World reports that the People's Democratic Republic of Korea, North Korea, has resumed testing digital radio broadcasting on the 80-meter amateur band after a two-year absence. North Korea is transmitting with the Digital Radio Mondial, or DRM, protocol. The latest transmissions on 3.560 MHz began back in mid-August. It appears unclear at this time, however, whether the current series of transmissions will soon end or be the start of regular service, Radio World said. According to radio enthusiasts in the region, the signal has been clear and very audible. Radio World went on to say that the Voice of Korea, the North Korean International Broadcasting Service, has conducted DRM trials off and on since 2012. The AWRL's Ad Hoc Legislative Advisory Committee will meet with several members of Congress later this month in Washington to introduce new committee members, reacquaint the lawmakers with amateur radio's most pressing issues, seek their input on the best ways to achieve AWRL's objectives in Congress, and request their continuing support. Committee members have completed a comprehensive analysis of Amateur Radio Parity Act efficiencies for dissemination to amateur radio backers on the Hill. The panel now is following up on this process with the meetings later this month. The committee has contracted with the Keelan Group to provide advice and recommendations regarding AWRL's legislative relationships. Keelan Group advisors also will aid in organizing and guiding the meetings between AWRL representatives and key congressional allies in support of amateur radio initiatives. On June 12th, the Legislative Advisory Committee held the first of a series of meetings in D.C. with AWRL Washington Council David Sedal, K3ZJ. The Keelan Group and a small contingent of radio amateurs associated with various governmental and non-governmental partners to solicit their perspectives and assistance in charting a future course of action. Pacific Division Director and Committee Chair Jim Temestra, K6JAT, described these individuals as critical allies in AWRL's efforts to achieve its legislative objectives. The process of analyzing and clarifying AWRL's aims began when the committee was reconstituted with new members at the AWRL Board of Directors January meeting. The board had determined a need to review, re-examine, and reappraise the AWRL's regulatory and legislative policy with regard to private land-use restrictions, 
with the aim of renewing, continuing, and strengthening the ARRL's effort to achieve relief from such restrictions. There seems to be no countervailing policy that could justify arbitrary conditions, covenants, and restrictions, Temestra said. Indeed, public policy should clearly favor the needs of the amateur radio operator. Amateur radio's role in public service and emergency communication will be the committee's strongest argument in seeking relief from private land-use restrictions that limit amateurs' ability to operate effectively. The committee will analyze the outcomes of this month's meeting and draft a report with recommendations for the ARRL Executive Committee to review and consider at its October 12th meeting. The full board is expected to take up the issue at its January 2020 meeting. Produced by amateurs, for amateurs, and originating from Albany, New York, you're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio. Well-known Canadian radio amateur Jay Allen, VY1JA of Whitehorse, Yukon Territory, has announced that he's retiring from ham radio, citing long-term health issues and hearing loss. The familiar VY1JA callsign also has been retired. Allen will begin dismantling his station and antennas as early as this weekend. His last contact was with KA4UPI on September 14th. He has uploaded his logs to Logbook of the World and sent copies to his QSL managers. After approximately 30 years of operation and over 110,000 contacts, the station VY1JA has gone QRT for operator health reasons effective September 14th, Allen said on his QRZ.com profile. All gear and antennas are for sale. For years, VY1JA was an eagerly sought-after multiplier in the ARRL November sweepstakes and other events, as well as a needed zone in DX contests. In recent years, as Allen has begun to step away from regular on-the-air appearances, his station has been operated remotely as VY1AAA by a team of Canadian-licensed operators located in the U.S., Allen said VY1AAA operation would cease on September 22nd. Jerry Hull, W1VE, VE1RM, who has coordinated VY1AAA operations, told ARRL that he's been searching over the past six months for another Northern Territory station that would be willing to host remote operation. The VY1AAA team is greatly saddened by this turn of events, Hull said. Hams around the world will surely miss Jay and the VY1AAA team on the bands. Jay has been an incredible friend and mentor. Now it is time for us to help him off the air. Hull said that over the past four years, the remotely operated station has logged more than 35,000 contacts and QSL requests will continue to be honored. He invited inquiries via email. Allen thanked Hull for his tireless efforts to keep YTNTVY1 on the air throughout the years of his operation and direction of remote operations. Hull said he will lead a final push to make contacts this week as VY1AAA before Allen dismantles his station. He expects to be on the air in the evening hours this week and on Saturday, if possible, mostly on 20 meters CW and SSB. 
Hull said Jeffrey Burns, NE3K, will be the new QSL manager for VY1AAA, X01X, and XK150 Yukon. The FCC is seeking comment on a notice of proposed rulemaking, or NPRM, that is part of an overall plan to complete its transition to electronic filing, licenses, authorizations, and correspondence. The notice proposes to make all filings to the Universal Licensing System completely electronic, expand electronic filing and correspondence elements for related systems, and require applicants to provide an email address on the FCC forms related to these systems. Although much of the FCC's Universal Licensing System filings are already electronic, the changes suggested in the MPRM in WT Docket number 19-212 would require all amateur radio service applications to be filed electronically. Under current rules, amateur radio applications may still be filed manually. Given the drastic changes that have occurred with regard to the ubiquity of the Internet and increased personal computer access, we find it unlikely that electronic filing remains infeasible or cost-prohibitive for the previously exempted types of filers or that they lack resources to file electronically, the FCC said in the NPRM, which was released on September 6th. We therefore propose to eliminate Section 1.913's exemption to mandatory electronic filing. The FCC said that while the vast majority of universal licensing system applications today are submitted electronically, some are still manually filed, largely from exempted filers, such as radio amateurs. Last year, the FCC received some 5,000 manually filed applications out of a total of some 425,000 applications. Among other aspects, the FCC is seeking comment on whether its underlying assumptions about the ease of electronic filing for previously exempted filers are valid. This NPRM also seeks comment on additional rule changes that would further expand the use of electronic filing and electronic service. Together, these proposals will facilitate the remaining steps to transition these systems from paper to electronic, reducing regulatory burdens and environmental waste, and making interaction with these systems more accessible and efficient for those who rely on them, the FCC said. Comments are due within 30 days of the NPRM's release. The Dayton Amateur Radio Association has signed a five-year agreement to keep the Dayton Hamvention at the Greene County Expo Center. The agreement was announced on September 9th by Hamvention General Chairman Jack Gerbs, WB8SCT. It has been a wonderful experience working with the Expo Center team in the development of this agreement, Gerbs said. With the five-year agreement signed, the Expo Center and Hamvention can move forward with additional enhancements to the facilities. Dayton Amateur Radio Association President Ron Kramer, KD8ENJ, said the DARA board in approving the contract noted that the relationship with the Expo Center and Greene County, the city of Zinnia and Zinnia Township has proven especially rewarding. Kramer said they have all worked hard to make Hamvention a success over the last three years. We look forward to a great relationship over the next five years and beyond. Hamvention's 2019 attendance was 32,472, the highest recorded since the move to the Exposition Center in Zinnia in 2017, which was coordinated by Kramer, the Hamvention General Chairman, in 2017 and 18. The largest amateur radio show in the U.S., the Dayton Hamvention, is held the third full weekend in May. The dates for 2020 are May 15th through the 17th. The Havre Daily News reports Montana's Havre and Hill County Local Emergency Planning Committees intend to take up a Department of Justice offer of amateur radio equipment. 
The Havre and Hill County Local Emergency Planning Committee Tuesday passed a motion to allow Hill County Health Department Public Health Nurse Bridget Kallenberger to look into getting the Emergency Operations Center located in the Hill County Detention Center a handheld ham radio. I think it would be a good addition, something good to have on hand, Committee Chair Sheriff Jamie Ross said. The item, which was not on the meeting agenda, was approved unanimously by the committee. Kallenberger said before the vote that the State Department of Justice has 200 handheld ham radios it is going to give out to different entities across the state, and she thought it would be a good addition to the Emergency Operations Center. She added that if the committee wanted one, they would need an antenna and possibly a second power source to power the radio, as well as a ham radio operator. She said that the Department of Justice is offering the radios with no strings attached. Ross said that a number of Hill County Search and Rescue members are certified ham radio operators and also have their own equipment. Hill County Commissioner Mike Wendland said it would be a good addition to the Emergency Operations Center because ham radios are reliable and useful in an emergency situation. A social media joke earlier this summer, setting up a Storm Area 51 They Can't Stop Us All group, now has spiraled into emergency declarations in two Nevada counties and spurred an amateur radio emergency service and radio amateur civil emergency service deployment of personnel and equipment. Some predictions say the Storm Area 51 event will draw thousands, many possibly ill-equipped to be out in the desert environment to the Nevada Test and Training Range, which contains the U.S. Air Force facility known as Area 51. Aries team planned to staff and support six incident-specific locations along the 50-mile event corridor known as Extraterrestrial Highway starting on September 19th and continuing until September 24th. Aries and Racy's personnel in Nevada began gearing up for Storm Area 51 on Monday, and Storm Area 51 visitors already have begun showing up. Secrecy surrounding Area 51 has long fascinated and inspired conspiracy theorists who believe alien life forms recovered by the U.S. military following UFO sightings in the 1950s are still being kept there. The events this week prompted stern warnings from the military to stay away from the site, and the FAA is reporting to have closed the airspace above the area. In June, 20-year-old Facebook user Maddie Roberts called for crowds of people to rush Area 51 in the Nevada desert to, quote, see them aliens, unquote, that some believe are being held as prisoners there. Within days, more than 2 million indicated they were taking up Roberts' rallying cry, and another 1.5 million expressed interest in doing so. At that point, Roberts declared that his initial post was just a joke. Multiple Facebook sites have opened since, promoting a huge music festival dubbed Alien Stock in Rachel, a town of about 50 residents, and an Area 51 base camp in Heiko. Other UFO-inspired events are popping up along desolate Nevada Highway 375, the extraterrestrial highway, effectively creating a venue more than 50 miles long, as no other roads exist into or out of Rachel. Reports say that hundreds of law enforcement officers and medical personnel will be posted along with the Nevada National Guard. Preliminary estimates of attendance have run as high as 100,000 and as low as 15,000, 
With virtually no local infrastructure and faced with the possibility of being overrun by visitors, officials in Lincoln and Nye counties declared states of emergency. When the events were first announced in late August, Lincoln County Sheriff Kerry Lee, assisted by the Nevada Department of Emergency Management and Homeland Security, found little time to prepare. Surrounding counties and agencies are pitching in with equipment and 350 personnel. Lincoln County, where Rachel sits, has just 5,000 inhabitants, and virtually all of the land is owned by the federal government. The county has just 20 law enforcement officers. Emergency medical and fire protection services are non-existent in Rachel. Volunteers staff a single ambulance, a fire truck, and a rescue vehicle. The nearest small hospital is 85 miles away, and the closest major hospital or trauma care is 150 miles away in Las Vegas. Telecommunication and other services are sparse to non-existent along the highway, and Rachel has just one business, a small bar, cafe, slash motel combination. Its proprietor told the Associated Press, It's happening. We already have people from all over the world. Given the spotty telecommunications, amateur radio could play an essential role in the event. Lincoln County's 30 radio amateurs are either unable to deploy due to age or they're already deployed in some other emergency response role. So Lincoln County Aries Emergency Coordinator Charles Reifsnyder, AD7OY, has recruited Aries personnel from throughout the state to support operations. Backup resources outside the area will remain on alert. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Leo Laporte, the tech guy, blowing in the wind. We had quite a drama last week because uh, an electrical fire cut the fiber line between us and the outside world. It feels like we're, we're living in igloo in... Uh, in uh, the great frozen north. But in fact, we are in just Petaluma, Northern California, in the, in the wine country. But the fiber line that connected uh, our town with uh, the big city, San Rafael, and Marin County, the big city, and from there on to the bigger city, and I'm sure the rest of the world, got an electrical fire. And uh, that's it. There was a, I didn't know, but that's a lot of fiber. 216 strands of fiber between us and San Rafael. That's... A lot of fiber. That's enough bandwidth to probably serve the whole world. I don't know why there's so much fiber. Actually, we're kind of all benefiting from the big bubble of uh, 1999, believe it or not. There's a whole uh, arm of economic theory about booms and busts. Bubbles happen all the time. People always mention the, the great tulip bubble of the 17th century in uh, in Holland yeah there was uh, i guess some kind of crazy investment in tulips and tulip bulbs this was uh, maybe the first recorded bubble tulip mania in 1637 individual six six single tulip bulbs sold for and you can't really say how much, you know, how many guilders it was, because that wouldn't tell you anything. But but you could put it in terms of the annual wage. Ten times the annual wage of a skilled craftsman for one tulip bulb. It's an economic or a speculative bubble. And uh, we had one, of course, uh, the great internet 
bust of 1999-2000. There was a lot of crazy investment in the internet. Remember that pets.com and you know site and in you know in hindsight probably a lot of those businesses would be doing fine today. But maybe they were too early or whatever. When you get a when you get a uh, what was it uh, the chairman of the Fed called it irrational exuberance. People overinvest and the values skyrocket. Nothing like anything that's going on today, but uh, <clears throat> but it all went crash in 2000. But we benefit from that because uh, in the late 90s, huge amounts of the money that was taken from investors went to building infrastructure and particularly fiber optics. And so there's a huge amount of fiber optic high-speed glass. This is a glass cable that carries so much more uh, data than the copper cables that we've kind of been used to. And because everybody was making the assumption, the irrationally exuberant assumption that the internet was going to transform the world, uh, they put in a lot of fiber optic cable. If you look at the uh, Wikipedia article for optical fiber, you'll see a fiber crew installing a 432-count, twice as big, cable underneath the streets of Midtown Manhattan. And it doesn't look much bigger, frankly. It's not a big, giant thing. It doesn't look much bigger than, um, you know, a cable, just a regular cable. But, man, that's a lot of bandwidth. A lot of it is what we call dark fiber. That is, it's not turned on. It's not lit up. And so that means we have all this capacity underground that isn't even used yet, but was put there in the exuberant 90s when we uh, we had lots of cash to do that. That's good news. We're going to benefit from that. It raises the interesting question, though, and Ars Technica had a great uh, piece on that this week. Are we, is it, does it make sense, these bandwidth caps that the cable companies and the internet service providers insist they have to put in place because we'll just use way too much bandwidth if they don't. Well, there's a lot of evidence that, in fact, that is not the case. That, in fact, bandwidth is pretty much free. There, <laughs> And there's really no excuse except greed for companies to put bandwidth caps on your internet use. It's just a chance to make more money on it. Here's the reasoning. Because most internet service providers have what we call peering arrangements with other internet service providers, you know, they all have to interconnect or we wouldn't be able to see Netflix, right? Because that's coming from a different internet service provider to our internet service provider. But they have arrangements, peering arrangements to say, hey, look, you take our data for free, we'll take your data for free. That means the bits, the actual bits that you're getting don't cost the cable company hardly anything. In most cases, they're free. They're free bits. Oh, but we have to build infrastructure, they say. That's true. That's true. You have to invest, capital investment. That can, that can add up, but you do it once. And you can have a lot of capacity, as we know from this dark fiber. Once you've installed on that, you got all that capacity in there. You can just keep pumping more data into it without any cost at all. And so there's there's good evidence that bandwidth is essentially, you know, an incremental, a very small incremental cost to all that bandwidth they're using. 
And uh, I, I think it's important. It's hard to understand because we think of bandwidth. We think of bits as maybe like, I don't know, pork bellies or soybeans, like a thing that costs money. But in a way, but it's just, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. And really what's going on, I think, is uh, is greed. And that kind of explains why in many uh parts of the world they have better and faster and lower cost internet than we do we who invented it now the good news is most isps are kind of like they don't want to acknowledge it but they're acknowledging it by removing and raising bandwidth caps comcast just raised its bandwidth cap a number of people number of internet service providers are eliminate the bandwidth caps so when the when your cable company starts talking about bandwidth hogs <laughs> And saying you're using too much, you're watching Netflix all night. Or when your internet service starts to degrade because everybody in the neighborhood is watching too much Netflix, you should go to them and say, look, dudes, you're making a lot of money. Let's let's improve our bandwidth. What do you say? It's bad. We have a couple of Australians in here. It's terrible in Australia, isn't it? You've got because partly because it was government run and then they then turned over Telstra and these other companies to private industry. And you never got the investment that you really needed to, to have good bandwidth. And if we think we have bad bandwidth caps in the States, it's worse in other countries, Australia and Canada. But then you look at uh, Scandinavia, where they're paying ridiculously 20 bucks a month for gigabit internet. And you go, why? How come? How, why? How come? Isn't that the same bits? <laughs> yeah, it's the same bits. <laughs> What's interesting is where companies like Google come in with fiber and charge reasonable amounts of money. Suddenly, the cable companies find the ability to do the same. Oh, wait a minute. There's competition? Oh, we better lower our rates. Competition is the best thing for this in general. The more competition, the lower the costs, the better the service. And uh, we got into all of this because the FCC allowed the cable companies to have a monopoly or sometimes a duopoly. It's going to get better. Better get better because, frankly, that's what powers the economy these days, isn't it? Anyway, all of which is to say our fiber optic was repaired. They spliced 216 individual threads of glass. That was hard. I actually was watching a video on YouTube of splicing fiber optic cables. It's not. It's non-trivial. It's a. They have to have a special machine. I don't know how they fuse the glass together, but they because you don't want to add imperfections. You know that's why it works. Because it's pure. So I'm curious. I don't know how they do it. But they did it. 216 strands. That's a lot. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. This is Bill Continelli, W2XOY, with Amateur Radio History Headlines. 1963, the ARRL responding to some complaints about generals being allowed on 75 and 20 meter phone proposes an incentive licensing system. Under the ARRL proposal, generals and conditionals would lose 75, 40, 20, and 15-meter phone privileges over a two-year period. Also in 1963, the building fund to construct the ARRL headquarters at 225 Main Street, Newington, is in full swing. The amateur population is over 200,000, but CB licenses now outnumber hams. 1964. A ham in the White House? Barry Goldwater, K7UGA and K3UIG, is the Republican candidate for president. He is defeated. Herbert Hoover dies at the age of 90. 
as Secretary of Commerce in the 1920s and President of the United States from 1929 to 1933, his strong support of amateur radio was invaluable. He lived long enough to see his son, Herbert Hoover Jr., W6ZH, elected President of the ARRL. 1965. The FCC comes out with its own incentive licensing proposal. General and conditional class operators would lose 50% of the 75 through 15 meter phone bands. A new amateur first class license with a 16 word per minute code speed would be the stepping stone between the general and the extra. Advanced class amateurs would not be grandfathered into the first class. Rather, they would be bumped down to general upon renewal. Oscar III and Oscar IV allowed two-way QSOs via satellite. This has been Amateur Radio History Headlines with Bill Continelli, W2XOY, for this week in Amateur Radio. This is the propagation forecast for Friday, September 20th. There are still no spots on the sun and the solar index is stuck at 68. The good news is that geomagnetic conditions are fairly quiet. The next chance for a disruption will be coming early next week. Now that we've entered autumn here in the northern hemisphere, conditions on the low bands are starting to improve, especially on 160 and 80 meters. Look for your best DX conditions there. On VHF and UHF, that hot spot for tropospheric ducting is still hovering over Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio. There may be some eastern movement next week, but if you live in that part of the country, keep your ears to your radios. And now with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO. From the AMSAT Corporate Secretary, Clayton Coleman, W5PFG, we have the results of the AMSAT Board of Directors election. This is the first time that AMSAT did both mail-in ballots or digital ballots. The choice was up to the member. 892 ballots were cast electronically, and 160 paper ballots were cast. Jerry Buxton, N0JY, Drew Glassbrenner, KO4MA, Patrick Stoddard, WD9EWK, and Michelle Thompson, W5NYV, will serve on the board for two years. The first alternate is Brennan Price, N4QX. The second alternate is Howard or Howie DeFelice, AB2S. Both will serve for a term of one year. FO29 is still experiencing difficulties. The command stations are asking for reception reports from the telemetry to be sent to OPER at JARL.org. The beacon is on 435.795 MHz CW. FO-29 is one of the older satellites, launched August 17, 1996. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. It looks like this weekend is going to be particularly active for special event stations. Here's a partial list. K2R will be on 40 meters celebrating 150 years of Rutgers University football. K4MIA will be active on 17, 20, and 40 meters commemorating POWMIA Recognition Day. Listen for W3M on 17, 20, 40, and 80 meters at the 19,000-year-old Meadowcroft dig site. W3L will be celebrating the saving of the Liberty Bell on 20 and 40 meters. 
W5P will be on the air from the Plano Balloon Festival on 40 and 20 meters. W4CA will be celebrating the construction of the Blue Ridge Parkway on 40 and 20 meters. NM5HD will be on the air, both figuratively and literally, on 20 meters for the EAA Chapter 179 fly-in. Look for N2R on 20-meter sideband during the New Jersey Royal Rangers District powwow. N3M will take to the air from the National Museum of Industrial History on 40 and 20 meters. K7T will be remembering Apache Warrior Geronimo on 40 and 20 meters. You'll find W0ALX on the air from the Runestone Museum on 20 and 40. W1M will be operating for scout camps on the air on 20 and 40 meters. W3GBH will be active on 20 and 40 for the Skyview Radio Society Founders Day. It's the 75th anniversary of the Voice of America Bethany Relay Station near Cincinnati, and WC8VOA will be taking to the airwaves on 20 meters. And finally, listen for K8FBI on 20 and 40 during the Flying Beers Fall Fundraiser. You'll find complete QSL information and more in the September issue of QST Magazine. If you're in the mood for a ham fest this weekend, you have your choice of several. You'll find hams gathering in Lincoln, California, Hutchinson, Kansas, Peoria, Illinois for the ARRL Illinois State Convention, Alexander, Maine on Saturday and Windsor, Maine on Sunday, and Ferndale, Michigan on Sunday. All the details are in the Conventions and HamFest section of the September issue of QST. HamSci and the Case Amateur Radio Club of Case Western Reserve University Station W8EDU will sponsor a Festival of Frequency Measurement on WWV Centennial on October 1st from 0000 to 2359 UTC starting on Monday evening, September 30th in the Americas. The event invites amateur radio operators, shortwave listeners, and others capable of making high-quality frequency measurements on HF to participate and publish their data to the HamSci community on the Zenodo Open Data Sharing Site. Changes in ionospheric electron density caused by space weather and diurnal solar changes are known to cause Doppler shifts on HF ray paths, the event announcement says. HamSci's first attempt at a measurement of these Doppler shifts was during the August 2017 total solar eclipse. We plan a careful measurement during the 2024 eclipse, they said. Some of the questions the research event is hoping to answer include how WWV's 5 MHz propagation path varies over a given calendar day and how various measurement techniques for understanding the path variations compare. The objectives are to measure Doppler shifts caused by the effect of space weather on the ionosphere and to use a specified measurement protocol available to amateur radio operators and other citizen scientists. The experiment will use August 1, 2019 UTC as a control date. The recordings in this experiment are expected to show formations of the D-layer at station's local sunrise and other daily events of the ionosphere, the announcement said. Space weather varies day-to-day, and some features may be prominent. We'll see what we get. Full information on how you can participate is on the Festival of Frequency Measurement website. This Week in Amateur Radio is holding open auditions for news anchors for the weekly national worldwide amateur radio news service. If you have a good radio voice and can reliably read provided news copy, we are looking for you. 
This, of course, is an all-volunteer position. An amateur radio license is not required. You must have a high-quality microphone. Headset mics are not used. And be familiar with audio editing software to record and edit your finished news stories before uploading. If you would like to try out for a weekly or bi-weekly anchor position with North America's premier amateur radio news on air and podcast, please send an email to our producer, George, W2XBS. You can include a sample MP3 of yourself reading news copies sent as an attachment to W2XBS77 at gmail.com. That's whiskey, the number two, X-Ray Bravo Sierra 77 at gmail.com. Be sure and use Anchor Audition in the subject line. Please include your phone number and a good window of time for a callback to discuss your submission and our operating logistics to see if This Week in Amateur Radio is a good fit for you. We hope to hear from you soon. Foundations of Amateur Radio Recently, I had the opportunity to use a new radio whilst I was far away from my shack. It wasn't unexpected. I took the radio with me, planned for the experience, and packed light with intent. My original packing included a 10 meter length of coax, my analyzer, some antenna weights, wire, rope, power leads, BNC adapters, barrel connectors, and a ballon. Total weights came in at about 7 kilo, more than double the weight of the radio itself. The biggest weight came with the coax, so that stayed home. Got rid of all the what-if adapters, dumped the antenna weights, dumped the ballon and the analyzer, added an unun and a multimeter, and came in at just under 5 kilograms. The idea was to operate from the car, chuck a long wire into a tree and make noise. Then I got to where I was going and learnt that there were lots of SOTA peaks nearby. If you're not familiar with SOTA, it stands for Summits on the Air, and it's a way of encouraging people to go out and make noise while also encouraging others to listen out for your activation of a nearby peak. As an aside, it's separate but closely related to WWFF, Worldwide Flora and Fauna, since peaks are often in national parks, and who wouldn't want an excuse to activate two things in one sitting? One of the most basic rules of SOTA is that all equipment must be operated from a portable power source, batteries, solar cells, etc., Operation is expressly forbidden using permanently installed power sources or fossil fuel generators of any kind. That of course means that using the battery in a car is not allowed, though I suppose I could unbolt the battery from the engine bay, but I'm pretty sure that the hire car company would frown on that plan. I set about attempting to find out how much power the radio actually draws at 5 watt, and how much battery I'd need to activate a peak. Given that my shack wasn't where I was, I couldn't just plug it into my fancy power supply and read the power draw from the display. Should have done that before I left. Shoulda, coulda, woulda. I resorted to asking the community, but that was dependent on the kindness of strangers. Another hitch was the battery. I came up with the brilliant plan to use one of those high-capacity jump-start boxes, 18 amp-hours or so. Picked the one I liked the best, figured out if I could ship it back to my shack on return, since it likely couldn't fly, both from a weight and a dangerous goods perspective, and found a supplier locally. Well, 108 kilometres away. And then, me being me, I downloaded the user manual, and learnt that what I wanted to do, power my radio, was expressly, strongly, not recommended. Fear of explosion and the like. Planning foiled. I still wanted to operate. Contest to be attempted. So to be damned. 
How could I operate and not fear that I'd be draining the car battery? A cigarette lighter mounted voltmeter. So now I can connect the radio directly to the battery in the car and check the voltage whilst I'm operating. Now all I need is a parking spot with a nearby tree or gazebo and no noisy neighbours or overhead power lines. I'll let you know how I go. I'm on Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. ARRL is seeking an emergency management director to oversee a team responsible for supporting ARRL emergency communication programs and services, including the Amateur Radio Emergency Service and the National Traffic System, and to work with staff to develop standards, protocols, and processes designed to support the field organization. This is a full-time, exempt position at ARRL headquarters in Newington, Connecticut. This individual would serve as the official point of contact and liaison to key partners and other served agencies at the regional and national level. Duties would include representing ARRL at served agency and partner meetings, conventions, and exercises, as well as organizing and providing presentations for various relevant audiences. The Emergency Management Director will oversee and manage the ARRL Emergency Preparedness Department and its support of the field organization that includes but is not limited to soliciting, training, and maintaining an ARRL Headquarters Emergency Response Team, creating, soliciting, or editing content for publications and electronic media, administering the HAM aid program, and working with key partners to establish plans, protocols, and procedures for incorporating amateur radio in their emergency response plans. Applicants should possess leadership ability as well as excellent written, interpersonal, and communication skills and should hold an amateur radio license of general class or higher. Applicants should have at least 10 years' experience in emergency management or equivalent. A bachelor's degree or equivalent experience in emergency management is required. Certification from NIMS, FEMA, or International Association of Emergency Managers are preferred. Frequent domestic or occasional international travel would be required. See the job posting for complete details on this position and how to apply. And now, with his special segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Indiana's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. This month, we'll learn more tower working vocabulary. As some of you may have noticed, tower climbers and owners have a unique vocabulary. For the climber, this is usually a combination of phrases from climbing, caving, and sailing. Sailing, you say? Yes, there are some phrases concerning the use of guys and rope anchors that were originally used in the ancient occupation of a deckhand. Some of these terms from sailing's history are a shackle, or sometimes called a spelter socket. This is part of the guy cable or guy wire that joins the cable to a mounting lug on the tower. This attachment point is called a guy lug. Bridge strand is a common type of steel cable used for guying a tower. Block. This is the common name for a pulley. The diameter of the roller inside the pulley is usually the size spec for that pulley. Butterfly clamps are commonly used to hold flexible coax to the tower leg. Common spacing is 6 to 8 feet. Some installers use a short piece of heavy wire with insulation, usually a solid conductor, about 10 gauge copper. Some use these in conjunction with electrical tape or weather-resistant cable ties. A cat head 
is a rope-pulling device similar in concept to a come-along. These are used on sailboats today and also for pulling lengths of wire or cable. Catheads can also be motorized for pulling cable or wire through conduit. A bullpin is used to align bolt holes. This steelworking tool is commonly used by tower workers to align bolt holes between tower sections. If you are going to build a tower, a homemade bullpin will save you lots of aggravation. A bullpin is probably available at your local hardware store or can be made from a simple one-inch steel rod with a gradual point ground in one end. They are used by hammering into holes to force them into alignment. And now for this month's climbing hint. Many of you folks remember the child's toy commonly called a Chinese finger trap. These flexible woven tubes were things you could stick two fingers into and the harder you pulled, the harder they gripped. There's an electrical device with a similar function made by a company called Kellum, K-E-L-L-U-M. These devices may be found at your hardware store's electrical department. These grippers are used for securing electrical cable, which runs from box to box without any other support. These grippers hold the wire securely and help to prevent it from being pulled out of a box and can easily be modified to grip a coax, then attaching a rope to pull the coax up a tower. If you can't find a Kellum at your hardware store, try asking an electrician that works in a factory or that does commercial work. When hauling coax up towers, use the proper size Kellum to hold the end of the coax. Avoid bending or stressing the coax at the lifting end. This can crack foil shielding and cause crackling when the coax bends in the winds or even fluctuation in SWR. If you've decided to purchase climbing safety gear and chosen to use sport climbing grade belts on towers, when you call their 800 number, don't mention you're going to use it for tower work. Some companies will refuse to do business with you because of their potential liability. This is very much an issue in the sport of recreational climbing, even more so than in the professional tower work. Remember, any time you spend learning about tower safety is an investment in yourself. Education is a big part of tower safety. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. Available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn.com. The Taurus 1 CubeSat carrying an amateur radio FM to codec 2 transponder was launched on September 17th from China's Taiyuan Satellite Launch Center. The CubeSat was developed by Aerospace Systems Engineering Research Institute of Shanghai for youth education in amateur radio. The transponder is similar to that used on the Lilac Sat 1, known as the LO90 CubeSat, and can use the same software once frequencies are changed, receiving FM with 67 Hz CTCSS on 145.820 MHz and retransmitting it as Kodak 2 9600 BPS BPSK digital voice on 436.760 MHz. The telemetry downlink is 435.840 MHz. In addition to the transponder, the satellite also carries a drag sail. Mark Jessup, VK5QI, reported receiving good telemetry signals. For more information on the transponder type, see Digital Voice on Amateur Satellites, Experiences with Lilacsat Oscar 90, which appeared in the January-February edition of the AMSAT Journal. 
Meanwhile, AMSAT is also reporting that an Antares II launch vehicle will carry 15 CubeSats into orbit on October 21st as part of NASA educational launch of nanosatellites Mission 25. Some will carry amateur radio payloads. TJ Reverb, developed by students at Thomas Jefferson High School in Alexandria, Virginia, will carry a 145.825 MHz APRS digipeter. HuskySat, a University of Washington at Seattle project, will be boosted into a 500-kilometer, approximately 310-mile orbit, via the Cygnus external deployment device. HuskySat will carry a VU linear transponder provided in cooperation with AMSAT. Other satellites announced for the upcoming launch include Argus, built by St. Louis University, 437 MHz telemetry, AzTechSat-1, from the NASA Ames Research Center with 437 MHz telemetry, SISAT, built by Iowa State University with 436 MHz telemetry, Phoenix, from Arizona State University with both 437 and 2,400 MHz telemetry, RADSAT-U, from Montana State University with 437 MHz telemetry, SPOC, built by the University of Georgia, with both 437 and 2,400 MHz telemetry, and SwampSat-2 from the University of Florida, also with both 437 and 2,400 MHz telemetry. And finally this week, since the advent of wireless technology, efforts have aimed at condensing the size of the necessary equipment to permit ease of transport, mobile installation, and radios that could be hand-carried, slipped into a pocket, or, in this case, carried on the belt. Hugo Gernsback Radiocraft for December 1936 included the article How to Make the World's Smallest Three-Tube Radio Set by Arthur Miller. It details how a clever radio crafter could construct a set worn on a belt around the waist and, in this case, with the antenna worn on the head in the manner of an old-time banker's eye shade. Vacuum tubes of the day were not too sensitive, required separate voltage sources for filaments and the plate, and were pretty hard on batteries. The filaments for the three tubes came from a liquid unspillable storage cell to supply the necessary two volts. The article says this battery should last from 7 to 10 hours, and came with an oiled silk bag and fits in the hip pocket. This was the sort of futuristic innovation that Gernsback typically featured in his publications. And the entire December 1936 issue of Radiocraft is worth pursuing. When using this belt radio, the wearer is quite unmindful that the latest news or dance music is coming from an ultra-midget receiver, which is actually being worn on the belt, the article exalts and it takes only a minute to put the whole equipment on and less to take off. According to Miller's article, building the three-tube set was easy. The loop aerial is wound on a cardboard disc 13 inches in diameter, it explains. Litz wire is used, and 22 turns are interlaced around the nine ribs. No mention of gauge hat size. The article concedes just to one disadvantage, and having to wear the antenna on one's head. The four-foot cable connecting it with the receiver acts as a capacitor and restricts the tuning range of the set, it explains. The set tuned the AM broadcast band, and with the antenna on the head, directionality was less of an issue. While it might look silly to us now, 
Project ideas such as this helped advance the radio art toward the technology we all use today and enjoy. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like our flagship repeater, W2GBO, on 146.940 MHz, serving the Tri-Cities of New York State's Capital Region. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved. You've just listened to a truncated version of This Week in Amateur Radio. Please visit TWIAR.net for the full version.